Part two, chapter two of *The Thread of Flame* by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter two. It would have been easy enough to find out where the Averills had moved to, but I didn't make the attempt. It was best for me to lose sight of them. It was best for them to lose sight of me. Now that the process had begun, I decided to carry it to the utmost. Nothing is simpler than being lost in a city like New York, so long as it is nobody's interest to find you. You have only to move round a corner, and it is as if you had gone a thousand miles. The minute I carried my bags away from the Barcelona, without leaving an address, I was beyond the ken of anyone inclined to follow me. I did this not of choice, but of necessity. In the matter of choice I should have preferred staying where I was. Though it was a modest, uncleanly place, I had grown used to it, and I dreaded another expedition into the unknown. But I had come down to my last ten dollars, with no relief in sight. A humbler abode was imperative, even to tide me over a few days. On the odyssey of that afternoon I could write a good-sized volume. Steps that would have been simple to a working man were difficult to me because I had never had to take them. Moreover, because the business was new to me, I went at it in the least practical way. Instead of securing a bed in one place before giving it up at another, I followed the opposite method. Paying my bill at the Barcelona, I went out into the street with no definite direction before me. Rather, I had one definite direction, but that was only a first stage. I had spotted on my walks a dealer in old clothes to whom I carried the ridiculous suits I had brought with me from France. He was a little old Polish Jew, dressed in queer, antiquated broadcloth, whose beard and tousled grey hair proclaimed him a sort of Nazarite. When I mentioned my errand, he shook his head with an air of despair, lifting his hands to heaven somewhat in the manner of Mr. Chestnut. "'No, no, open not,' he exclaimed, as I laid the suitcase on the counter in order to display my wares. "'Will the high-born gentleman but look at all the good money spent on these beautiful garments, and no one buys my merchandise? Of what use more to purchase?' When I had opened the suitcase, he cast one look at the contents, turned away dramatically to the other side of the reeking little shop. A backward gesture of the hand cast my offerings behind him. "'Pah! Those I cannot sell! Take them away!' He came back, however, fingering first one suit and then the other, appraising them rapidly. "'One dollar!' he cried, lifting a bony forefinger and defying me to ask more. "'One! One! One! No more but one!' I raised him to two, to three, and finally to five for each suit. In spite of his tragic appeals to ruin not to overtake him, he seized my hand and kissed it. Thus I was out on the pavement with twenty dollars in my pocket, and so much liberty of action that I didn't know what to do. It was about three in the afternoon of a sullen December day, and big flakes of snow had begun to fall softly. It was cold, only in the sense that my suit had been bought for hot weather, and the light French box-coat, which was all I had besides, added little in the way of warmth. Unable to stand with my two bags in the doorway of a shop for second-hand clothes, I moved on more or less at random. But one thought was clearly in my mind. I must find a house where the sign Rooms was displayed in a window, and there I must go in. For the first half-hour I kept this purpose in view, walking slowly and turning my head now to one side of the street, now to the other, so as to miss no promising haven. A room being all I needed— any room within my price would do. Having no experience, I could have no choice. If I had no choice, it would have to be for Miss Flowerdews. 
but that would have brought me back into the circle from which I was trying to slip out. Miss Flowerdew's setting my only standard as to rooms, I had imagined myself as walking into something of the kind, though possibly more cheerful. It is hardly necessary to say that in this I was disappointed. Drifting in and out of houses through most of that afternoon, I saw women and conditions that almost shattered such faith as I had had left in human nature. The first to answer my ring at a doorbell was a virago, an enormous creature, bigger if not taller than myself, and clad in a loose pink flannel wrapper that added to her bulk. She challenged me to find a fault with the room I declined after having seen it. "'Better men than you have slept in that bed,' she called after me as I clattered down the stairs, "'and any one who says different will lie.' The next was a poor, leering thing who smiled in a way that would have been horrible if it had not been so sickeningly imbecile. The next was a slattern, pawing her face and wiping it with her apron while she showed me the dog-hole for which I was to pay seven dollars a week. There were others of whom it is useless to attempt a catalogue further than to say that they left me appalled. When the lights were being lit, I was still in the streets with my two bags, and the snow falling faster. I was about to go back to the Barcelona for the night, when something happened which I told to you just as it occurred. That morning I had read in a paper the account given by a young Canadian officer of his escape from a German prison, of his beating his way to the Rhine, and of his final swim across the river to Switzerland. But the point that remained in my memory was his picture of himself as he lay like a lizard with his nose to the stream and his feet in the underbrush as the bank rose behind him. Listening to the current, he could guess how strong it was. Putting his hand in the water, he could feel it cold. For over two hours he lay there in the darkness, resting, wondering, and thinking of a little cemetery not far from Basel, where lay the bodies of the prisoners who had tried to make this swim. Then, as the minute approached at which he must give himself to these difficult waters, he prayed. His account of the act was simple and straightforward. He asked God to have him in his keeping while he made this attempt, and to comfort those at home if he failed. With that, he slipped into the stream and struck outward. Well, standing somewhere in the neighbourhood of 8th Street and 6th Avenue, I turned this over in my mind, considering its advisability. I was not what would be called a praying man. As to that, I had not prayed in years. I had sometimes told myself that I didn't know what prayer was, that its appeal seemed to me illogical. Illogical it seemed to be now, in the sense of imploring God to do what he wouldn't do of his own accord. So, although I didn't pray, something passed through my mind that might have been prayer's equivalent. As far as I can transcribe it into the words which I did not use at the time, it ran like this. I know there is a God. I know that His will is the supreme law for all of us. I know that that law is just and beneficent. It is not just and beneficent for me to be standing here in the snow and the slush, chilled, hungry, with wet feet, workless and homeless. Consequently, this is not His will. Consequently, I must give myself to discovering that will as the first principle of safety. When I have got into touch with that first principle of safety, I shall find a home and work. Of this, the immediate result was that I did not return to the Barcelona. Something like a voice, the voice of another, told me that the thread of flame led onward. Onward I drifted then, hardly noticing the way I went, hypnotised by the physical process of being on the move. It was just on and on, through the slanting snowfall, 
through the patches of blurred light, with feet soggy and heart soggier, a derelict amid these hundreds of vehicles, these thousands of pedestrians, all bound from somewhere to somewhere, and knowing the road they were taking. I didn't know the road I was taking, and in a sense I didn't care. Having given up from sheer impotence the attempt to steer my ship, I was being borne along blindly. When I lifted my head to look about me again, I was in a part of New York not only new to me, but also refreshing to the eye. I mean that it was one of those old-fashioned downtown regions, where the streets hadn't yet learned the short and easy cuts to beauty of running only at right angles. Two or three thoroughfares focused in an irregular open space, which I saw by the signboard to bear the name of Meeting House Green. There was no meeting house in the neighbourhood now, and probably nothing green, even in spring. If it was like the rest of New York, it would be dirty in winter, and fetid in summer. But after the monotonous ground-plan of the uptown regions, its quaintness relieved the perceptions to a degree which the thunder of the nearby elevated couldn't do away with. Just now all was blanketed in white, through which drays plunged heavily, and pedestrians slipped like ghosts. As I stared about me, my eyes were once more arrested by the magic notice, Rooms, though this time with the qualifying phrase, For gentlemen. Rooms for gentlemen. The limitation seemed to fit my needs. It implied selection and a social standard. The house, too, was that oasis in New York, an old-time dwelling in grey-painted brick, which progress had not yet swept away. Standing where Wapping Street and Theodora Place ran together at a sharp angle, it was shaped like a sadan or a ship's prow. The tip of the ground floor was given over to a provision dealer, while a barber occupied the long slit in the rear. Between the two shops, a door on the level of the pavement of Theodora Place gave on a little inset flight of steps, which led up to the actual entrance. The vestibule was shabby, but moved by an experience in the early part of the afternoon, I observed that it was clean. The woman who answered my ring was not only clean, but neatly dressed in what I supposed was a print stuff, and not only neatly dressed, but marked with a faded prettiness. What I chiefly noticed for the minute was a pair of those enormous dull blue eyes on a level with the face, as the French say, a fleur de tête, which make the expression sweet and vacuous. In her case it was resignedly mournful, as if mournfulness was a part of her aim in life. A single gas-jet flickered behind her, showing part of a hallway, in which the same walnut furniture must have stood for so many years that it was now groggy on its feet. To my question about a room, she replied with a sweet, sad, "'Won't you step in?' which was tantamount to a welcome. The floor of the hallway was covered with an oilcloth or linoleum, which had once simulated a terracotta tiling, and was now but one remove from dust. On a mud-brown wall a steel engraving of a scow, with age at the helm, and youth peering off at the bow, sagged at an angle which produced a cubist effect in its relation to the groggy-footed hat-rack. The doors on the left of the hall were closed. On the right, a graceful stairway, lighted by a tall window looking out on Theodora Place, curved upward to the floor above. At the sound of voices in the hall, one of the closed doors opened, and a second woman, a replica of the first except for being older, came out and looked inquiringly. She too was fadedly pretty. She too was mournful. She too was saucer-eyed. She too 
was neatly dressed in a print stuff. "'This gentleman is looking for a room,' was the explanation, sadly given, of my presence. The ladies withdrew to the foot of the stairway for a whispered conference. This finished, the elder came back to where I stood on the doormat. "'We generally ask for references,' she began, with a glance at my sodden appearance. "'If that's essential,' I broke in, "'I'm afraid I must end matters. "'I've only recently come over from France, "'and I'm a total stranger in New York. "'I, I rang the bell because I saw the notice, "'and I liked the look of the house.' "'As it happened, the last was the most tactful thing I could have said, "'going to the hearts of my hostesses. "'Something, too, in my voice and choice of words "'must have appealed to their sense of gentility. "'It's a nice old house,' the elder lady smiled, with her brave air of having to overcome agony before being able to speak at all. It's old-fashioned, of course, and horribly in the wrong part of the city nowadays, but my sister and I love it. We've always lived here, and our dear father before us. He was Dr. Smith, quite a famous oculist in his day. You may have heard of him. I've heard the name, I admitted politely. We've two good rooms vacant at present, but if you can't give references— a wan smile deprecated the unladylike suggestion. "'I'm afraid we should have to ask you for a week's rent in advance. I shouldn't speak of it if it was not our rule.' When I had agreed to this, she led the way over the frayed coconut matting of the stairway-case to an upper hallway, also carpeted in pulverised oilcloth. With one sister ahead of me and the other shepherding me behind, I was ushered into a large, prow-shaped room immediately over the provision-dealer, and smelling faintly of raw meat. I'd have borne the odour if the rent had not been six a week. "'We've another room just over this,' the spokeswoman informed me, "'but it's only half this size.' "'If it's only half this rent.' "'It's just half this rent.' So, marshalled as before, I mounted another stairway in coconut matting to a slit of a room shaped like half a ship's prow, with its single window placed squintwise. As the smell of raw meat was less noticeable here, the squint of the window out into meeting-house green, and the rent so low, I made my bargain promptly. In the days of the famous oculus the room must have been a maid's. It was still furnished like a maid's, in a house of the second order. A rickety arm bedstead supported a sagging mattress, covered with a cotton counterpane in imitated crochet-work. A table, a washstand, a chair, and a chest of drawers were perhaps drearier than they might have been because of the sick light of the gas-jet. On a drab wooden mantelpiece, which enshrined a board covered with a piece of cretonne where once had been a fireplace, stood the only decoration in the room, three large fungi painted with landscapes. The fungi were of the triangular sort which grow about the trunk of trees. There was a big one in the middle of the mantelpiece, and smaller ones at each end, giving glimpses of rivers and bays, with castles on headlands, to one tired of the prospect of meeting high screen. Taking the initiatory three dollars from my purse, I bent to study these objects of art. Once more the act was ingratiating to my hostesses. "'That's my work,' said the little woman who had admitted me to the house. Her tone was one of shy pride, of a kind of fluttered boastfulness. "'My sister's an artist,' the elder one explained, taking my three one-dollar bills as if their number didn't matter but making conversation in order to count them surreptitiously. "'She's a widow, too, Mrs. Leeming. I'm Miss Smith. We've had great sorrows. We try not to complain too much, but 
A long-drawn sigh with a quiver in it said the rest, while Mrs. Leeming's eyes spilled tears with the readiness of a pair of fountain cups. To escape the emotional, I returned to my inspection of the landscapes, at which I was destined to gaze for another two years. "'Are these studies of, of Italy?' I asked, for the sake of showing appreciation. Mrs. Leeming recovered herself sufficiently to be faintly indignant. "'Oh, no, I never copy. I work only from imagination. Landscapes just come to me, and all different.' Before they left me, Miss Smith managed to convey a few of the principles on which they conducted their house. "'We've three very refined gentlemen at present, two salesmen and a Turkish bath attendant. One has to be so careful. We almost never take gentlemen who don't bring reference. But in your case, Mr. Soames, well, one can see.' Her wan, suffering smile flickered up a minute and died down. "'There's a sort of freemasonry, isn't there? We have taken gentlemen on that, and they've never disappointed us.' I hoped I should not disappoint them either. Now some young men, well, to put it plainly, if there's liquor we just have to ask them to look for another room. Tobacco with gentlemen one can't be too severe on. We overlook it and try not to complain too much. And, of course, only gentlemen visitors. With my assurance that I should do my utmost to live within their regulations, they were good enough to leave me to my single chair and the fungi. Dropping into the one and staring at the other, it seemed to me that I had reached the uttermost edge of the forlorn. I could bear the extreme modesty of this lodging, seeing that it gave me a shelter from the storm. I could bear being hungry, cold, and wet. I could bear the wall of darkness and blankness that hemmed in not only my future, but my past. What I found intolerable was the sense of being useless. The blows of fate I could take with some equanimity, but not to be able to make good or to learn a living— cut me to the quick in my self-esteem. And yet it was not that which in the end beat me to my knees beside the bed to bury my head against the counterpane of imitation crochet work. That was a more primal craving, a need as primal as thirst or the desire for sleep. It was the longing for some sort of human companionship, for the gay toleration of Lydia Blair, or Drinkwater's cheerfulness, or Mildred Averill's. End of part two, chapter two.